I want to publicly thank Mark for uh, stepping in last week and uh, teaching for me, um, and uh, appreciate being able to uh, being able to go and visit with the uh, the congregation uh, at Liberty. Uh, and so I was there for their summer series, and so I appreciate him uh, stepping in. The week before, we introduced our topic for this quarter, uh, last, uh, last Things and Times, and looking at a variety of both uh, views and opinions about what is supposed to happen during the end times, asking are these things biblical, uh, as well as looking at some things uh, biblically about what the Bible teaches to us about what things are supposed to take place uh, at the end of time. And we finished, we were in the process of uh, looking at an examination of a variety of theories historically in the United States uh, regarding these end times. We talked a little bit about just a general overview uh, of uh, post-millennialism and premillennialism. A lot of people have believed, a lot of people, uh, religious people have believed that there will be a thousand-year period, a millennium, uh, in the end times, where Jesus will uh, kind of establish a reign on earth. Some people believing that society will get better and better through human effort, and then the Lord will return, and so uh, post-millennium, Jesus will return. Uh, others believing that society would get worse, and uh, then the second coming would happen, and then the millennium, so pre-millennial. Others like William Miller, as well as Charles Case Russell, uh, who was kind of the the originator of the Jehovah's Witnesses, have tried to put dates down and say, this is when it's going to take place. Um, but in all cases, anyone that has tried to put a date, whether that's a year or an, even an actual day, as some people have done, uh, they have been wrong. Where we finished up two weeks ago was beginning to talk about dispensational premillennialism. This is perhaps the most popular form of premillennialism or end times or eschatology uh, that exists today in the religious world, especially uh, those that would uh, came, claim some connection with Christianity. So premillennialism suggests that the second coming is going to happen, and then Jesus is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. The dispensational part refers to the idea that history, human history, is made up of a series of time periods or dispensations in which God has interacted with human beings in different ways. Usually, a lot of uh, premillennialists that are dispensational uh, believe that it's going to be seven periods. Right? And so there's seven dispensations from the beginning of time to the end of time. And we'll talk more about some things related to that uh, over the, the coming weeks, Lord willing. But it really became a popular view in the 19th century through... Uh, the Schofield Reference Bible. Maybe you've heard of that or seen that. Maybe you even have a copy. A man named uh, Charles Schofield took his views on dispensational premillennialism and integrated them into this study Bible uh, in, produced in uh, the early 1900s. It's still around today. You can still uh, buy copies of it in a religious bookstore. It uh, became a very popular way for how people uh, viewed this idea of... of how the world was going to end. But in many cases, uh, the premillennialist view here uh, had a very uh, negative impact on um, people's thinking about the world, right? Very 
pessimistic view. A lot of people prior to the Civil War, and especially prior to World War I, were post-millennials. Right? When you think about the optimism that existed in the United States about you know, right after the Revolutionary War and what the country was going to achieve and all these wonderful things that were taking place, a lot of people were very, very optimistic about the potential of human beings. But after the violence and the death in the Civil War, as well as in the uh, World War I, a lot of people became very pessimistic about what we as human beings can achieve uh, on our own. Uh, and so a lot of people uh, that were of this millennial variety um, became very kind of pessimistic, and this dispensational premillennialism became very popular. And even within the church, um, there were controversies in the early 20th century over uh, premillennialism. There were some um, of our brothers that adopted some of these things, some of the dispensational variety, some not. But still this idea of Jesus' return and then a thousand-year reign. One of the problems that a lot of people that opposed premillennialism in the church had was the view of the church that the premillennialist view supports. Essentially, a premillennialist view argues that when Jesus came the first time, he was unable to establish his kingdom, and so the church was put in his place. And so that makes the church kind of something substandard. It makes it something that is not the plan of God. And a lot of people in the church who had grown up studying about the church, had grown up emphasizing the church, the importance of the church, couldn't believe that some of our own brothers and sisters were adopting this view, um, and so there was a great conflict, a lot of debates in the early 20th century over this, and uh, uh, a lot of controversy, sometimes uh, very heated uh, over this issue, uh, concerns and, and naming people. Uh, the president of Harding, for example, the, there was a lot of concern about his stance on this because he wouldn't come out and condemn certain leaders who were obviously premillennials. And so other people wrote him up and other college uh, presidents up because they wouldn't come out and condemn uh, some of the premillennial leaders. And so it became a very, uh, very difficult time uh, for a lot of uh, members of the church in the early 20th century. Today, there are relatively few, most of them in Kentucky, where kind of the center of this was, uh, who are still premillennial. Uh, most members of the church are not. Um, are not premillennial in their outlook. Um, so, you know, the controversy did eventually die down, but it, for a time it was a very significant one. Of course, the Cold War led to a lot of expectations of the end being imminent. And there, from that time point on, uh, anytime there's been some sort of conflict, especially that the United States has been involved in, uh, there have been these uh, these prophets, so to speak, uh, who have come out and tried to say, right, the, all the signs are pointing to this being the end. And so Russia especially, USSR, uh, you know, there was a lot of concern by people that not only was there the concern of you know, nuclear proliferation and mutual assured destruction and all these other kind of things, there was the concern that what was taking place here in the uh, the front page in the newspaper at the time. Some of you may remember what a newspaper was. 
right? You know, that these are fulfillments of these prophecies. And so people like Hal Lindsey wrote these books, right? Lindsey's great book, uh, well, not great book, his popular book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, essentially was his presentation of, you know, the things that we are reading on the front page of the newspaper is the fulfillment of prophecies found in Daniel, found in Ezekiel, found in Revelation. And so the assumption was that Russia, USSR, was fulfilling prophecies about being the enemy of God, which fit right into the Cold War rhetoric, right? Because the United States was very, very religious country, right? kind of a, three, uh, a tripartite faith, right? Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. But then there was the godless communists right? who were atheists. And so the assumption that the USSR was the enemy of God's people predicted in these prophecies. A lot of people really uh, bought into that. And so Lindsay's book became very, very popular. It was a bestseller. And religious bestsellers, um, getting onto trade market general retailer lists is very, very difficult. For a religious book to become a bestseller on the New York Times list, for example, uh, it has to do really, really well because the New York Times, some of these other major lists, don't include religious bookstores and what's sold in religious bookstores. So not only could it, does it have to do well there, it then has to do well uh, in your, well, let's see, what was around back then? Uh, you know, B. Dalton, uh, you know, um, Barnes & Noble, I, I think that might have been around then. So it was a really, really popular book that a lot of people bought into. And, and Lindsay laid out, right, you look at this, this prophecy here in this passage, doesn't that sound like what Russia's doing? Now, you know, also tapping into this for a lot of people, when the, um, the European common market developed, it developed with ten nations. Well, there's a prophecy in, in Ezekiel that has something to do with the number ten. And so the European common market is, 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 is the European Union, right? That, that's a precursor to Revelation. Of course, when the U European Union gets beyond ten members, well, right, got to change the, what the, the fulfillment is. Right. And, of course, Soviet Union isn't around anymore. But I probably wouldn't be surprised if there are some people out there saying, right, we have these escalating tensions with Russia, and so maybe Russia really is the fulfillment. Well, Russia's not the fulfillment of those prophecies. But people like Hal Lindsey uh, become very, very popular in sharing these kind of messages of right, what you see on the front page of the newspaper is what the Bible predicted thousands of years ago. And in a sense, you can see why, because it helps people understand. It helps people, taps into people saying, the Bible's trustworthy. And so people say, oh, yeah, I believe in the Bible, and, and here's the fulfillment of the Bible. Well, there's other ways that the Bible is fulfilled. Yeah, the Left, Behind, uh, the Left Behind series kind of comes uh, towards uh, the, the later end of the 20th century, but very, very similar. And as part of a wave of a variety of apocalyptic movies and TV shows, right, we hit Y2K. Right? And Y2K 
was terrible. It was, it was going to, you know, it was the end of the world. Why was it the end of the world? Well, there were three zeros in that date, right? It's the end of the world. This is, this is a reason why it's important for us to know our history. Right? So this, there was this concern, right? The year 2000, right? You have this notion of the millennium. Right? Slight problem. Our calendar's off. When the monks tried to line up the Western calendar with the birth of Jesus, they missed it by four to six years. So if Y2K was supposed to be the end of the world, by 1998, we should have been like, Y2K's nothing. Now, yes, there was some concern about computer code and other types of things, but as far as it being the end of the world, know your history. But there was this wave of, you know, end of the world movies, some of them religious in nature, some of them not, and Left Behind tapped into this. Now, Left Behind was fiction, and the author's claimed, right, it's fiction, but it's fictionalized, according to them, it was fictionalized events of what was really supposed to take place. So it's kind of a fictional telling, but the belief was, these are the things that are going to happen. And that was another one, general market bestseller, which is ridiculous for a religious book. Um, And it became very, very popular, all 14, 16, however many of them there ended up being. In, in many respects, we, we talked about um, William Miller last week, and I, I forgot to mention this. Some of you that are really interested in music and hymns will get a kick out of this. Uh, the, we talked about William Miller. Miller said 1843 was the date, right? That's the date that Jesus is going to return. He was wrong, um, obviously. There is a song in our songbook, We'll Work Till Jesus Comes, written by William Miller. It's a different William Miller. <laughs> But every time we sing that, and I see William Miller, I always think, yeah, he was going to work till Jesus comes because it was only supposed to be a year or two. But, you know, you, even in, in 1843, 1844, this expectation of, you know, this is it, this is the end, I'm going to quit my job, I'm not going to come in, I'm going to sell my business, I'm going to sell my house. You know, a lot of people who've bought into some of these dates, uh, when the time comes, they've gotten rid of a lot of things because they expect that this is the end. And that was even the case a couple years ago with Harold Camping. Uh, Harold Camping said what it was May of 2011, I think, was supposed to be the end. Uh, Camping had a very popular radio show, and if you remember the news at the time, they were talking about these people that had kind of, you know, sold their homes, quit their jobs, were traveling across, um, traveling across the country, preaching this message, 
know, that the, the rapture was supposed to take place in May of 2011, and the last judgment was going to take place in October. Well, May of 2011, of course, went, and it was, well, God decided not to do the rapture. He's just all going to do it in October. Yeah, the, the question, of course, is Christ saying, you know, I, I, the Son of Man doesn't know the day of the hour, and it's going to happen like a thief in the night. Most of these people, and, and certainly there are probably some charlatans, but I, I try to think the positive of some people. That, that Harold Camping probably, and William Miller probably really believed that they had discovered this truth and, and were trying to look at it, have a rather high view of the Bible. But when you look at some of these things, especially Harold Camping's calculations, right, you had to take this passage and then this passage and then you multiplied it by this number and divided by this other number. How do you get that? Right? There, there, there isn't this notion of you kind of cut and paste and you add numbers together that don't really relate. But people that, that might not know their Bible as well see these kind of things, and there's a lot of scripture used, and, and, and it appears on the surface to kind of hold together. And so people are, you know, buy into this kind of thing. Of course, when, when the time passes, um, you know, often they're left in this kind of limbo. Right? What do you do when what you thought was right? So you either find a new date, or you, you know, you kind of uh, give up on it all sometimes. Right, yeah, the, the, there have been several different types of, of things that have developed over, over the years. Uh, barcodes, somebody mentioned barcodes to me um, two, uh, two weeks ago. And yeah, that, that when barcodes first started to be used in products, uh, there was a, this is the mark of the beast, right? Because uh, you weren't going to be allowed to buy or sell, right? Revelation 13, unless you have the mark of the beast. Of course, you know, in order to buy or sell, you got to have that barcode. Yeah. And then, and then debit cards, of course, now with the chip, uh, the people talking about having an RFID thing implanted in you, right? So you don't even need the card anymore. You're going to, you know, we're going to use our, uh, this chip implanted in us. None of that's the mark of the beast. None of that would have made sense to first century Christians, right? You're going to go to a supermarket to buy your food that's going to have this bar thing on it that's going to be read by a computer. And so you Christians in the first century don't want to adopt that. 
okay, I think we're all right. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have all these things that, that and, and people uh, sometimes, again, you don't want to think um, charitably about people, um, that, that they're not doing, I mean, yes, there are people out there doing it for, for gain, but the assumption that these things are fulfillment of prophecy is something that we, we really need to be careful of. And so even in our current time, there are these concerns about, uh, and, and these purveyors of uh, end times things. Right when, uh, when 2012 was coming around, the big thing in, in 2012 was the Mayan calendar. And so the Mayan calendar, all these things the Mayan calendar predicted, and the Mayan calendar ends in 2012. And so we're gonna, the world's going to end in 2012. Okay, well, the Mayan calendar is a secular calendar, so you kind of start over once you get to that last one, right? So just because it, that'd be like saying the world's going to end because my calendar ends on December 31st. Well, next year, buy a new calendar, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's not how a calendar works, right? The year, world doesn't end because the year does. It was the same thing with the Mayan calendar. Yeah, there, there is, uh, you know, we certainly see from Scripture there are certain things kept from human beings and, and certain things kept from human beings for good reason, right? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was kept from human beings for good reason. Right? God doesn't reveal everything to us for good reason, right? Even if we don't know what those reasons are. And so I, I do want to, you know, suggest um, as we're, we're thinking about these things, this is not a reflection of uh, trying to suggest, uh, and, and uh, I might have come off that way, and I don't want to suggest somehow some, some superiority on, on my part or our part because we don't think like that. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of things that we think of or that we think that, you know, are probably pretty ridiculous to other people. And we say, oh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Right? So I, I don't want us to necessarily have an air of superiority here, but instead, you know, reflect on definitely some things related to, to Scripture uh, and thinking about some of these things. So as I also mentioned um, last uh, two weeks ago, we'll be looking at some different topics related to these end times. And the first one I want to talk about uh, is, will there be signs that the end is getting ready to take place? Will there be signs of the end times? The assumption, of course, in this view is that there will be signs that we can identify, that we can watch for before the world comes to an end. And the passage that is most often used related to this is Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 14. And so people hold to this, that hold to this view believe that in this passage, Jesus lays out 
particularly for the apostles, but then for Christians in general, the kind of signs that will take place before the end. So if you see these things, you know that the end is coming. So I want to take the time to read this passage uh, in case you, you, know, you don't have a lot of familiarity with it. So beginning in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So a lot of people in, in the past couple decades, you know, past century or so, have believed that what Jesus is giving the apostles is a series of signs that they can identify or that later generations, later Christians can identify to know when Jesus' return or the end is going to take place. And so when it comes to people that believe this, there are certainly some that try to predict the day, right? Harold Camping, William Miller, uh, Charles Russell, there have been others that have tried to predict the day. Most people that believe this, however, won't. They believe that you can't know the exact day, but you can see these signs and know that it is coming. And, of course, as you kind of expect, and, and maybe there is some hubris or some narcissism in here, and, Probably, if I hadn't prefaced it, uh, I, I probably could have asked this uh, and, and found out something similar. Most people that accept these kind of things think that the end is going to happen in their lifetime. And probably, if we'd have taken a poll before I said that, probably most of us in here, even if we don't believe there's signs before the end, probably most of us would have felt, well, we don't know when, but I kind of feel like it's going to be sometime within my lifetime, right? So, you know, for a lot of people, it's not, well, there's going to be signs, but it's going to be a thousand years from now. It's, it's going to be soon. So what are the kind of signs that they point to? Well, kind of breaking down some of the things that Jesus says here. One is the belief that there will be an increase of false Christs or false prophets. Right? Jesus says, many will come in my name. Well, think about the past 40 years. People like Jim Jones, David Koresh, right? a variety of these fundamentalist compounds. Right? All sorts of people claiming either that they are somehow Christ reborn or they have a special insight into a new revelation. Right? And so people say, you know, we're looking, and you see all these people Coming out, this has to be a sign of the end. We think about the military battles. Just, again, thinking about the past three decades. 
Balkans, right? The Gulf War, the situation in Bosnia, uh, the Iraq War, Afghanistan, right? The, the buildup that's taking place now with North Korea. And, you know, tensions are kind of decreasing, but they were there for a while. We don't know what's going on with Russia. Right? Wars and rumors of wars, right? That's not counting of all the things going on with ISIS and in the nations of Africa. And so people say, you know, we're seeing all of these wars and rumors of wars. Uh, things like famines and earthquakes taking place, famines in Africa and other places, uh, various earthquakes that have taken place. Surely these must be signs of the end. Right? Persecution of Christians. Right? You're going to be persecuted because of uh, my namesake. People departing from the faith. Right? The love of many will grow cold, or the love of most will grow cold, Jesus says. We could go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, that talk about in the later times, many will depart from the faith, and they'll adopt the doctrine of demons. Certainly, Jesus is telling us here that there will be a departure from the faith. Well, probably due to false Christs and false prophets, right? A decrease in spirituality there uh, as well. And so on one hand, it kind of looks like Jesus is giving signs for the end of time. And it certainly looks like it's going to be our time, right? But there are a couple of things to think about when it comes to this passage, Matthew chapter 24. And if you were in my class on how to study Bible, hopefully you remember that the three most important rules for Bible study are context, context, context. So what's the context of Matthew 24? When Matthew writes these things down, he doesn't just start with verse 4. Well, to get the context, you actually have to go back to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, and we won't take the time to read all of this, but especially towards the end, Jesus is kind of really focusing on condemning the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he talks about uh, them being the descendants of those that crucified or killed the prophets. Um, fill up, this is verse 32, fill up then the measure of your ancestors, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you ex escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying, is Jesus is saying something, is, something terrible is coming on this generation, the generation he's talking to, because of what they are going to do 
to the followers of Jesus, and all the blood is going to be held to their account. And and Jesus is going to make Jerusalem desolate. As he finishes this, this condemnation of the Pharisees, verse 1 of chapter 24, he begins to go out of the temple precinct. As he does, his disciples are starting to kind of call his attention to the beauty of the buildings. His disciples came to point out to him, 24.1, the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 4. So verse 4 comes after Jesus has just been condemning Jerusalem, talking about its destruction, and that the stones of the temple, not one was going to be left on another. That's the context for the comments beginning in verse 4. Notice as well, Jesus starts off with, do not beware that no one leads you astray. These are not signs, these are misleading signs. When have we ever not heard of wars and rumors of wars? When has there ever not been famines and earthquakes? When has there never been people coming out claiming they have some sort of revelation of the divine? When has there never been persecution of God's people? Oh, it's worse now than it was. Really? Read a history book. Jesus says, do not be deceived about these signs. When you hear these signs, these aren't the signs. So he absolutely says, these aren't the signs. Don't be fooled by these things. Instead, though, there is a real sign. The real sign is found in verse 15. 4 through 14 are misleading signs. Don't be fooled by these. The real sign of what he's talking about is verse 15. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then something's going to happen. So all these signs, 4 through 14, don't tell you anything. There's no indication. Jesus doesn't say these are going to get worse toward the end and then you know they're signs. No, he says these are misleading signs. Don't be deceived by them. But something's going to take place. Now, the desolation, the the desolating sacrilege here, the uh, abomination of desolation your translation might have, refers to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. And in that passage, Daniel is being told of a prophecy. And Jesus, and through Matthew, Jesus is telling others about this. 
Verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. Wow, we're really getting confused now, right? I mean, what are we talking about? What helps us out here is the parallels that we find in Mark and Luke, particularly Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 20, Jesus is more specific about it. How do you know about the sign, the desolating sacrilege? In Luke chapter 21 verse 20, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. What's, what's the sign? The sign is, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is what I'm talking about. So Jesus, when we see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what should we do? What's the response? All right, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2014, uh, 24. All right, start reading again in 15. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. What do you do when you see the sign? When you see the sign, you run. Can you outrun the end of the world? What kind of advice is, the end of the world's coming, run? So, I mean, if it's the end of the world, why are you even thinking about going down and grabbing your coat if it's the end of the world? So what Jesus is saying here is not talking about the end of the world. Look further down. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. If this is talking about the end of the world, what does it matter if it's the Sabbath day? What does it matter if it's winter, if these are signs of the end? However, if it's talking about something else, then maybe we have something else. But for some people, we say, but no, you know, look down there at verse 29. Okay, let's look at verse 29. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the sign, excuse me, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Sun turning to darkness, moon turning to blood. Sounds like the end of the world. Right? The powers of heaven being shaken. Certainly, this is talking about the end of the world. Well, if we just look at these verses on face value, 
it might sound like the end of the world. But to do so doesn't completely understand how the Bible sometimes uses this language. Let me give you an example as we get close to closing tonight. Joel chapter 2. That's a little early. I still have two minutes. I'll try to do this quickly. Joel chapter 2. I beg your indulgence here for a minute. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 28. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents or signs in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Same type of language, right? Sun turned to darkness, moon to the blood. Joel must be also talking about end of the world. Only problem with that is the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, of course, the Spirit comes on the apostles. They're able to speak in other languages. The people in Jerusalem are wondering, what is all this going on? And Peter, of course, they first think that they're drunk. Peter says, of course we're not drunk. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 2, and we'll end here. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Peter says all of that end times type of language that Joel spoke as he was directed to by God, he was talking about Pentecost. So God, through his prophets, uses that language to talk about great change is taking place. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It means something significant is going to happen. Lord willing, we'll pick that up next week and talk about what that significant thing was.